When you hear the word trial, what comes to mind? There are different types of trials. There are court trials. These are in the legal field. There are actually two types of court trials, civil trials and criminal trials. One of our elders has a law degree from Notre Dame. He knows a lot about civil trials. Another one of our elders, before coming on staff, he used to run with the mob, so he knows a lot about criminal trials. Yes, that's not true. We have, uh, there are court trials, but there are also clinical trials. These are in the medical field. And there are two types of clinical trials, interventional and observational. I'm trying to show you that there are many types of trials. There are court trials, clinical trials, but our text doesn't deal with those. Our text deals with life trials. Court trials, those are in the legal field. Clinical trials, those are in the medical field. Life trials, those are in your field. And just like the other two fields, there are two types of life trials. There are devastating trials, and there are frustrating trials. Devastating trials are when a sibling unexpectedly dies, or you were diagnosed with an incurable cancer. You discovered your spouse is having an affair. Your child becomes drug addicted. Those are devastating trials. Then there are just frustrating trials. You didn't get the promotion at your job. You have to move somewhere that you really don't want to go. You're having problems with your child's behavior. Your car is messing up. You don't like your job. There's been a disappointment. Peter, in our text, will deal with the second type of life trials. It's not that he's unconcerned with the heavy ones or that he can't handle the heavy ones, but he's focusing in on the frustrating ones. He will, later in the book, deal with the first type of life trials. He'll do that in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He will hone in on those, but that's not his focus at the moment. Notice in the middle of verse 6. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. 1 Peter 1, 6. You may want to mark those two words, various trials. Getting a precise handle on what Peter means by various is important. The adjective translated various, porkilos, is used 10 times in the New Testament. Some versions translate the word all kinds of trials, suggesting that the readers are not facing a big, pressing, devastating trial, but lots of smaller, frustrating trials. Peter uses this adjective to show that he's talking about the general problems that Christians face. The Greek word for various has lots of elasticity in it. It's a wide word. And you do no harm to the text in translating it like this. You have been grieved by trials of various colors. I've found that many pastors walking through the book of 1 Peter present trials in one color. Persecution. 
I'm not denying that the book addresses Christians being persecuted. It, it does that in chapter 3 and 4, but that's not what's happening here. He's dealing with trials of a different color. And to the best of my research, Nero's rampage against Christians did not reach the outer parts of the empire where these churches were until after they received this letter. Severe persecution is coming, but it hasn't arrived yet. We're not talking about blood-red trials at the moment. We're talking about the everyday trials that hit us in the normal rhythms of life. The everyday trials of various colors. Now, I feel like I've done a decent job as a pastor preparing you to deal with devastating trials. But I've done a poor job preparing you to deal with frustrating ones. Peter says, all you churches need to know how to process these everyday trials of various colors. And Peter shows us in verses 3 through 9, grieving souls in colorful trials. Grieving souls in colorful trials. Colorful trials can cause grief. Peter is writing to a massive group of churches and he says, I know these frustrating, colorful trials have grieved you. Verse 6. The word grieved can refer to trials that cause some physical pain or some mental pain or some emotional anguish. The word includes anything that causes you disappointment, sadness, heartache, Sorrow, anxiety. Things where you say, this hurts. This isn't pleasant. I want to escape it. Not, this is going to kill me. Just, I'd like not to have to deal with this. The gospel helps you with both types of trials, devastating and frustrating. Trials that make tears rush out of your head. And trials that simply make you shake your head. Trials that make your body go limp. And trials that make your fist clench. We tend to pray about the big trials. But often we attempt to handle the little ones on our own. And that's not wise. I have two truths that arise out of the text. And I'll follow that with two applications that I'll pull from the text. Two truths that arise out of the text. And I'll follow that with two applications that I will pull from the text. Truth number one. You need deep theology to endure even shallow trials. Notice Peter doesn't even bring up the colorful trials right away. <laughs> He just gives these spread out churches deep theology. He knows that's the answer. He, he doesn't get to the trials until he reaches verse 6. First, he hammers away on the deep things of God for three verses. You need a big theology before you face even a small trial. Trials can blur and blind your view of God. Now, before I even read verse 3, I need to let you in on something. 
I'm, I'm not even preaching a full sentence today. Uh, verses 3 through 12 are one sentence in the Greek. Those 10 verses are one long, lengthy sentence in the original language. I mean, I'm reading it this week thinking, forget a vowel. Peter, can I buy a period? Somewhere, anywhere, use a period. And, and I don't know what to tell you other than to say it's one long, holy, run-on sentence. Kids, don't do this. <laughs> Unless you're writing the Bible. But there isn't any more Bible to be written, so just don't do it. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, friends, is a doxology. An exuberant praise of God. Both Peter and Paul use this doxological formula in their writings. In their letters, they at some point put the pen down, put their hands up, and praise. And I hope that happens when you listen to preaching here. That you hear something that makes you drop the pen and praise the God you're taking notes about. I've been in a very busy season of life recently. I'm coming out of it now. And there's something I tried to guard against in that season of preaching. There is a a danger endemic to preaching glorious theology week after week. And that is having your hands and heart cauterized to holy things. Philip Brooks says pastors can become a train conductor who comes to believe that he has been to the places he announces because of his long and loud heralding of them. In the book of 1 Peter... Peter has just packed verses 1 and 2 with theology. You know that from last week. Those two verses were like his energy bar. After eating the energy bar, after processing that theology, what happens? Until we arrive at verse 3, we have not yet achieved the goal of theology, which is the worship of God. Theology leads to doxology. And that's why we burst into praise after every sermon. Theology turns into doxology. What you know to be true about God, theology, leads you to praise of God, doxology. What gives you energy in the Christian life? What gives you stamina, endurance, It's deep theology. When I think about all the churches that Peter is addressing, I think such young churches, such deep theology. Some of these churches are like little newborn calves learning to walk, wobbling everywhere. Now, it's it's true that some of the churches in this area were 20 years old, but most of them were much younger, 12, 10, 5 even three years old? What do people need to sustain the colorful trials of life? They don't need to be pumped up or hyped up. They need to be trained up in theology. R.C. Sproul said in one of his classes, he said, gentlemen, 
All sound theology must begin and end with doxology. When theology does not begin and end with doxology, it becomes merely an abstract intellectual exercise in which the heart is not engaged and the soul is not properly moved. Why do we praise God? Why do we do doxology? Is it because God is insecure and needs us to stroke his ego? No. God doesn't need to hear nice words in order to feel better about himself. We, we were made for doxology. We were created to declare God's excellence. When you receive theology, truths about who God's it, who God is, and that leads you to doxology, praising God for who he is, you are doing what you were created to do. You will never be more fulfilled than when you are doing doxology as a result of receiving theology. Verse 3 continues. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, I want you to see both motive and mode in this verse. Motive, why did God save us? Mode, how did God save us? First, motive. Why did God save us? It's simple. Mercy. We are saved because God isn't going to give us what we deserve. We deserve the wrath of God. We receive mercy. And this word mercy focuses in on the sinner's miserable, pitiful condition without Christ. His great mercy overcame our great sin. Mode. How did God save us? Well, the verse tells us. New birth. New birth. Underneath your new birth... Underneath your new birth is the mercy of God. It was there before new birth was there. Notice the structure in the sentence. New birth sits on God's mercy. Let's take a little survey. How many of you have ever heard anyone say, I am a born-again Christian? Born-again Christian. Ever heard that language? Okay. To say born-again Christian is saying the same thing twice. It's needless redundancy. It's like saying, let's meet at 12 midnight. Just say midnight or I fell down. Just say you fell. That direction is always down. <laughs> Peter assumes every Christian has been born again. You can't be a Christian without being born again. Now, how do you know if you've been born again? Well, how do you know if you've been born? You have life. You know you are alive, not because you have a birth certificate, but because you're breathing. And if you have passed spiritually from death unto life, you know it. Verse 3 continues, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In our vernacular, we use hope 
to refer to general optimism, like a vague wish. I hope I get that job. I hope that something will take place in the future, but I don't know for sure that it will. But in biblical categories, the word hope, this hope, is defined as a certain expectation. Hope in the Bible is certainty, a full assurance. And you are born again into, that's the Greek word ace, you are born again into a sphere or a realm of living hope. This hope God has established by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This hope is living. This hope is breathing. This hope blinks. This hope has fingernails. It's living. Hope is only mentioned five times in the book of 1 Peter. But really it underlines the whole tone of the book. And you can see why Bonhoeffer preached 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 before he was hanged. There's hope. A certain hope. Hope is a powerful incentive to continue on through various colorful trials. You were born again to a living hope, better translated, a certain hope. So notice, notice the word to here. You were born again to a certain hope, but as it continues, verse 4, also to an inheritance. You were born to a living hope, but also to an inheritance. Now, what is this inheritance we will receive because we are born again? I um, did some intense research this week on Google. <laughs> Such a trusted uh, source. I, I Googled around this week to find some of the most surprising and bizarre inheritances ever left behind. And some of these are just wild. Uh, a, a tiny Maltese Apparently, it's a, it's a pampered dog. It looks like a little rat. A, a tiny Maltese inherited $1 million and a vacation home. Uh, two homeless Germans inherited $5.5 billion from their grandmother. That was quite a surprise to them. William Shakespeare left his wife, Anne Hathaway, and I quote, the second best bed with the furniture, end quote. I don't know what was going on there. I don't want to know. But what is the inheritance in our text? Because it obviously it isn't any of those. Peter is taking a very common Old Testament word and he's redefining it. In the Old Testament, the inheritance for the nation of Israel was the land that God promised to them. And sometimes it's even referred to as the promised land. And, and even broke down later to plots of land promised to each tribe. But Peter understood the inheritance, however, no longer in terms of a land promised to Israel. But in terms of another inheritance received after death. Unlike Israel's earthly inheritance that came and went because of their sins, this one came with the new birth and it will never go away. At this point in the text, it's still a mysterious inheritance. <laughs> we don't know what it is yet. But Peter gives us three words to describe it. He says, it is imperishable. 
imperishable. If something is perishable, it means it can decay. Our inheritance can't decay. It can't perish. It is untouched by death. It is imperishable. Peter says, secondly, it is undefiled. These New Testament Christians in these churches knew that the Old Testament promised land had been defiled. And it had been defiled really two ways. First, by their sin. God told his people Israel in Jeremiah, I bought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but you came in and you defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. So it was defiled by their sin, but secondly, it was defiled by invading nations. First the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Ptolemies, then the Seleucids, then the Romans, all invaded the promised land, took possession of it. The land was stained with pagan sin, defiled. But this new inheritance, the one we will receive, will be unstained by evil. It will never become stained or filthy. This is the same word used to denote Jesus' sinlessness in Hebrews chapter 7. The, the mysterious inheritance is imperishable. And two, undefiled. Three, unfading. Not like your hairline, men. This will not fade. <laughs> the sensitive, that's a sensitive topic. I apologize. I see that cut deep. This is unfading. This inheritance will not lose its luster or beauty. Where is this inheritance, whatever it may be, where is this inheritance stored? Not on earth, but in heaven. Kept in heaven for you, Peter says. Kept in heaven for you. Now that should give you a big sigh of relief. Breathe easy. You have a new security. The form of the verb kept, perfect passive participle, indicates that it's a completed past activity by God with results that are still continuing into the present. God himself has stored up or reserved this inheritance in heaven for believers. And it continues to be there, still reserved for them so enough already <laughs> what is this inheritance that the born again will receive well it's threefold first it it's a new land it's land it's the old testament inheritance improved this new land that we will inherit is the new heaven and the new earth from our vantage point, it's hard to even imagine a world or land undefiled by sin. A world without locks or alarms. Cities where keys would be unnecessary for theft is obsolete. A world where every woman sleeps without fear. Every man is honorable. Every child is cherished. No sin. Not at all. Our hands are stained with the indelible ink of pride. But it will not always be so. We have an inheritance. First, it's a new land. Secondly, it's a new 
treasure. Gundry considers the threefold description of this inheritance to be an adaptation of Jesus' teaching about the threefold benefit of storing up treasures in heaven. Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where neither thieves do not break in and steal. It's a new land, it's a new treasure, but finally and ultimately, it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is Jesus himself. Just as originally the Lord himself was the inheritance of the Levites in Joshua 13, that priestly tribe of Israel, so the Lord also is the inheritance of the royal priesthood of Christ. The psalmist knew this. The psalmist knew with certainty that he would inherit God. He said, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. Now, how does this promise of future security help you endure present difficulties? Soon, all the colorful trials will cease at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He continues writing in verse 5. If you're wondering if it's the same sentence, it is. Verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. John Piper put this verse on his mother's gravestone. The KJV version, which is the way she would have wanted it. The KJV reads, who are kept by the power of God. Her salvation was kept until the moment she died in a car accident. Get this little jewel. God has kept the inheritance for you and has kept you for the inheritance. Heaven is kept for us and we are kept for heaven. Heaven is prepared for us and we are prepared for heaven. How can anyone read the Bible and think that they can lose their salvation? That is beyond me. You are protected for this day. You are kept for this day. You say, Kyle, I mean, I'm not saying I'm going through a devastating trial, but I'm going through frustrating trials. And Kyle, I can't hold on. Good news. Jesus is holding on to you. Christ has not just made your salvation possible. He has made it sure. The present tense of the, of the word here, being guarded, being guard, you are being guarded, your salvation is being guarded. The present tense of the word being guarded indicates our need for continual protection. The same word in the original language is used in 2 Corinthians of soldiers guarding a city. You have something better than elite forces guarding your salvation. You have God. He is watching over your salvation. You should bless God because your future salvation is certain. Hence, your life should be marked by an undaunted hope. 
no matter how hard our life on this earth may be, we can cling to the promise that God keeps us. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, we have a future hope. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, we have present trials. Notice what Peter does here. He gives you the future hope before he even addresses your present trials. With these first three verses, Peter has set the readers on their feet with deep theology. And now, and only now, can they face colorful trials. And that leads us to our second truth. Truth number two. You can rejoice and grieve at the same time. Verse six. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Draw a little line to connect those two words, rejoice and grieved. Do not let anyone ever tell you that a Christian should not grieve. Grieving is a God-given emotion. Grieving is not sin because God does it when you sin. There is a book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's just one big old ugly cry. It's okay to grieve over devastating trials. And friend, it's okay to grieve over much smaller, frustrating trials. God's power keeps your salvation, but it does not guard you from colorful trials. Sometimes life seems like it's just being pulled apart by the seams. You grieve but not as those who have no hope. You have a certain hope. You grieve in hope. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. A joy that overwhelms the grief, but does not eradicate it. Notice the first words of verse six. In this, that's important. In this, you rejoice. In this, what is this well it's referring up to verses three through five the word this is referring to salvation you rejoice in your salvation while facing colorful trials in the greek the the word rejoice is literally agaleo which means much plus halimo, which means jump, put those two words together, much jumping. Jump for joy. That's the word rejoice. Jump for joy. Trials didn't give you this joy, so trials can't take it away. You have to fight for joy while experiencing colorful trials. Our text highlights three realities about various trials that it's important for you to understand. And since it's highlighted in the text, I must cover it. The first reality is this. Trials are not eternal. They may last a long time, but they will not last forever. Notice the phrase, 
little while. For a little while, we bleed. For a little while, we face disappointments. For a little while, we hurt. The whole body of Christ suffers for just a little while. Trials are not eternal. Secondly, trials are never wasted. Stephen Davey points out that the two words in verse 6, if necessary, are in the conditional form, which assumes the reality of the condition. You could amplify it by reading it like this. You face colorful trials if they are necessary, and they are. The New Testament assumes trials. That's normal Christianity. The New Testament primarily sees trials as the road believers must travel. So Peter is pointing here to divine purpose behind every trial. Notice verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Now let's pause there. See those two words, tested genuineness? Trials prove the genuineness of your faith. It's a war that makes generals. It's trials that sanctify you. These trials are in no way meaningless, but serve to refine and purify your faith. God is at work, church, in the muck of life. What purpose, what purpose do multicolor trials serve? Peter's comment about gold is, um, is a parenthesis that explains how trials prove our faith. And so why don't we just look at some similarities between our faith and gold. Uh, faith and gold are, are, are both proved by fire, the text says. Literal fire tests gold, and figurative fire tests faith. If it burns up, it's not real gold. If it burns out, it's not real faith. The Puritans used to say, a faith that cannot be tested cannot be trusted. There is a lesser to greater argument in the verse. If precious gold is tested by fire, how much more is precious faith tested by fire? If perishable gold is benefited by fire, how much more is imperishable faith benefited by fire? Gold is exposed to the fire to remove impurities. So faith is exposed to fiery trials to remove impurities. I don't want you to answer out loud, but I, but I want you to think about this question that I'm going to ask you. What impurity could God be removing right now through your colorful trial? Because it's not meaningless. It's doing something. Trials, one, are not eternal. Trials, two, are never wasted. Number three, your colorful trials are controlled by God. 
I hear all types of stuff as a pastor. Most of it is just wonderful theology, as you can imagine. God's not going to put me in the furnace. I am one of his. <laughs> Please, read your Bible. Ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about fire testing faith. They knew. If you love Jesus only when he gives you a trial-free life, that actually proves you don't love him. You just love the trial-free life. In this passage, God becomes the goldsmith. How can the fact that God controls your trials comfort you when you're going through them? Well, one historian said that in ancient times, an eastern goldsmith would keep the metal in the fire until he could see his face reflected in it. Could God? Could God be keeping you in the fire until he sees his face reflected in your responses? He puts you in the fire not to destroy you, but to refine you. What trials are you facing now? What grief are you experiencing? Do not become crushed by it. You have trusted in Christ and God is at work in your life. And he will not waste your colorful trial. How might God use this difficult time to refine you? To strengthen you? To grow you? When God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps an eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. Later in this letter, I don't know if this is going to hit you like it hit me, but it helped me in my study this week. Later in this letter, Peter will remind the reader that for every color of trial you might face, God has a color of grace to match it. It's the same word found in this verse as 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Colorful trials met with colorful grace. Have you matured enough? Have you matured enough in your Christian walk to say with the psalmist, it was good for me to be afflicted. It was good grief. Good grief. The trials you go through this is, this is something you have to work into your heart. And, and Lord, I, 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 can't, I can't do it. I can say it, but only the Lord can work it into your heart. The trials you go through will not burn up anything good. If you're a Christian, it will only burn up the bad things. It is to John Rippon, the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, prior to the pastorate of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I just like to mention him in every sermon. Uh, it was John Rippon, um, it is to him that we owe the famous hymn that goes like this. Possibly you've heard it. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. 
I love this line because it's God speaking to us. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Have you matured enough to view the devastating trials but also the little frustrating trials that way? Verse 7 continues again. We're in the same, we're in the same sentence. Help us. Verse 7. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, there are two views on, on verse 7. John Piper has a view, and then I, and then I have a view. And uh, we all know whose view is right, don't we? Um, you, you may want to go with Piper on this one. But John, John Piper thinks here that, it's your, that it is actually your genuine faith that is receiving the praise, the glory, and the honor. And you might think, well, well, that sounds too uncomfortable, Kyle. Uh, us receiving those things, shouldn't Christ receive all those things? Christ loses nothing when Christ praises faith in Christ. Now, that's Piper's view. Piper thinks it's our genuine faith receiving the praise, the honor, and the glory. I think it's your genuine faith that will result in Christ receiving the praise, the honor, and the glory. Church, what you need is not to know that you're going to make it through this trial. What you need is to know that God will receive glory by you experiencing this trial. That is enough. You don't even have to make it through it. That is enough. Verse 8, though you have not seen him. Now imagine Paul writing this letter to these churches. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Now Peter, of course, had seen Jesus. He had walked with Jesus. He camped out with Jesus. Peter heard his voice. Peter looked into his eyes. Peter touched his skin. But the Christians in Asia Minor, where these churches are, had never seen Jesus. They never looked into his eyes. There was a woman who wore the same heart-shaped locket around her neck every day. People began to notice and to speculate what was in the locket or who was in the locket. Was it a picture of her late husband? Was it a picture of her children? Could it have possibly been her new grandchildren? The curiosity got the best of one of her friends, and she asked her, whose picture is in the locket? That woman moved her hand toward her necklace and opened the locket, and there inside was not a picture, but a verse. Though I have not seen him, I love him. I testify with that lady, I have not seen him, but I love him. Is that the sentiment of your heart? Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now that sounds good until you really start to dig around in there. Obtaining the outcome of your faith hasn't happened yet. 
the salvation of your souls. He's like, Kyle, wait. We will obtain the salvation of our souls? I thought Christians already obtained the salvation of their souls. I thought they were already saved. Well, salvation is a multidimensional doctrine. The Bible uses the verb to save in every tense of the Greek language. Past. Uh, there is a sense in which we were saved at the moment we repented of our sins. Past. Uh, present. There is a sense in which we are being saved. Future. There is a sense in which we will be saved. That's when we enter into the fullness of the inheritance being kept for us. That is, complete and already awaiting the believer's arrival. Past, already saved from the penalty of sin. Present, currently being saved from the power of sin. Future, will be saved from the presence of sin. Kyle, was your salvation past? Yes. Was your salvation in the, is your salvation in the present? Yes. Kyle, is your salvation in the future? Yes. All three. Past, present, future. So that is two truths that we, we mind from the text. Now I want to give you two quick applications that we pull from the text. Application number one. Prepare your children to face frustrating trials. Prepare your children to face frustrating trials. Parents, this is something we should teach our children. How do we shepherd their hearts through colorful trials? And they may not seem big to us. They may seem small to us, but frankly, some of yours seem small to me. And some of my big ones seem small to you. How are we going to shepherd their hearts through these colorful trials? He, he missed one word on the spelling test that he rehearsed ten times. He knew how to spell it, but it kept him from getting a hundred. She didn't like her new haircut. His fish died. She didn't make the team. Their friend moved away. You should parent by this statement. Prepare your children for the road, not the road for your children. Prepare your children for the road, not the road for your children. Well, I'm going to make sure that they never have to work a day while in college. How about making sure their faith stands when they are bombarded with ungodliness at college? I'm going to make sure that no other child ever says anything mean to them. Well, Mama Bear, how about you teach them to process the grief that comes from the mean comment? Or just teach them to throw a right hook, <laughs> like one of our kids did last week on the playground. I love these little sad notes the teacher sends us. Hadden threw a haymaker at a child calling him a name on the playground. I read, I'm telling Sarah, like, they call this a sad note? This makes me happy. They should call this a happy note. 
Parents, you teach your children to deal with trials the same way Peter taught us to deal with trials. You give them deep theology. When days are hard and tears are flowing, your kids don't need the church to supply programs for them. They need the church to supply doctrine for them. Application number two. Grieving saints can only be gladdened by the gospel. Grieving saints can only be gladdened by the gospel. Let's say you've experienced some colorful trials lately and they've left you grieving. In fact, you're in a little bit of grief this morning. Hear me, Christian. That trial has taken nothing that you need because Christ is all you need. That trial has taken nothing that you need because Christ is all you need. You're not the only one who has ever experienced grief. Jesus was acquainted with grief and sorrow. Peter shows us where our greatest encouragement and trials come from. The gospel. To our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds. But thou alone. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.